read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. It's a hard truth that North Carolina's criminal justice system regularly meets out wrongful and inequitable sentences. And recently, NC Newsline investigative reporter Kellen Lyons detailed one such deeply disturbing case. Bobby Norfleet was convicted of a crime in 1979 as a young man, trying unsuccessfully to set a fire to a house, and because of the way the law read then, and because Norfleet was poor, black, and represented by a new and inexperienced attorney, he got sentenced to life. Forty-three years later, a social worker discovered him as a feeble and much-abused inmate, and thanks to attorney Susan Pollitt of the group Disability Rights North Carolina, Norfleet was released. Earlier this week, I caught up with Lyons and Pollitt to discuss the disturbing details of Norfleet's story and how it's far from the only one of its kind in our state prisons. Susan Pollitt, Kellen Lyons, welcome to News and Views. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. This is a remarkable story, as I said in the intro. Kel, give us just sort of a broad overview of this remarkable story that you wrote, a very compelling piece for NC Newsline recently. It's entitled, A Miscarriage of Justice, A Life in Prison. Talk to us about the basic outlines of the story. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So Bobby Norfleet grew up in and around Plymouth in Washington County, North Carolina. He was arrested in May of 1979 for arson after a fight with a girl who lived near him. He was charged with arson, which at the time was punishable only by life imprisonment. He didn't have much money. He told the court that he only had $10 in a bank account. And he was appointed an attorney who had only been practicing law for nine months at the time that he got the case. And that's sort of the beginning of where Bobby really started to have some trouble with the justice system. He was a young man, right? He was, how old was he when this was all going down? He was 23 years old when he first got arrested. There's a weird aspect to this story, which is that arson was life in prison at that time, but it wasn't for much longer. Bobby kind of fell through the cracks. I think a week or so after his arrest... I remember the timeline correctly, legislators instituted some sentencing reforms that didn't go into effect until a couple of years later. But the gist is that they broke arson up into degrees, which means that you wouldn't be going to prison for life for arson if you were similar to Bobby, uh, by which I mean somebody who didn't have any prior felony convictions and you know who didn't get charged with, um, you know, probably wouldn't have been charged with a first degree arson. He would have been probably charged with a, with a class C felony, I believe. And he would have, you know, he would have done decades less in prison for the same time, essentially. But as it turned out, he did 43 years of a life sentence until Susan Pollitt discovered him. How did you find out about this gentleman? And tell us about what happened then. Yeah. And thanks for having me too, Rob. I need to back up just a bit and tell you that Disability Rights North Carolina is the state's protection and advocacy system for people with disabilities. That's a federally created network of advocacy organizations across the country. And in North Carolina, we are the one designated for North Carolina. Part of our job is to protect and advocate for people with disabilities wherever they are, including specifically by the federal statutes in prisons and jails. And we do that by being present as much as we can. There are 56 prisons in North Carolina and we can't be everywhere. But we do try to be present in all kinds of institutions where people with disabilities are, including psychiatric hospitals, group homes, developmental disability centers, and so forth. And so We had been active in advocating for people with disabilities in the North Carolina prison system for a little over 10 years, and people knew of us. We'd go into the prisons with our name badges and such, and so I heard about 
Mr. Norfleet from a prison caseworker who I think as Keelan has reported said, what in the world were they thinking in Washington County in 1979? This guy hardly did much of a crime. He didn't hurt anybody. And 43 years later, he's still here. He's not able to protect himself against the younger people that he's living with. And, you know, this is a dangerous situation. I was able to follow up on that. Many lawyers wouldn't, you know, have the capacity or the ability to do that. But because we're the PNA, I could. And you were able to go to a judge and say, this is a miscarriage of justice. This man needs to be released. Not exactly, Rob. There's a lot more to it. But I I was able to meet with Bobby, Mr. Norfleet, a couple months later, saw for myself his condition, his kindness, learned he had family that cared about him, which is critical to getting anybody out of prison after 43 years. He could remember the phone numbers of his brothers and sisters, which is how I found them and talked with them. So that started a process of getting to know the family a little bit, to know Mr. Norfleet's needs and what his needs would be upon release. I basically had to cold call to the public defender down in Washington County because that's not an area I've practiced in. She was great. Laura Gibson is the new public defender down there. And it took her about two seconds to realize the injustice that had happened in Washington County in 1979 and want to rectify it. Wow. Cal, tell us about the lawyer, Busby, Charles Busby, who was originally representing him and he's still around, right? So Busby is is retired now, but he practiced all for you know some number of years. And I talked to him and he essentially tried to put me in the mindset of Bobby at the time of the case, when he got the case, which was that you know, he was essentially saying that it, this district attorney appeared to have pretty solid evidence. He didn't really remember Bobby's case necessarily, but he did say that he knew this DA and that this DA probably had, he used the words, had the goods on Bobby. You know, he told me that it wasn't uncommon for him to see defendants feel guilty in the aftermath of a crime and to uh, be open to a guilty plea. And then- Which is what happened here, right? He pled guilty, right? He did plead guilty. Yeah. Um, I mean, the crux of the, as I understand it, the motion uh, that attorney, public defender Gibson filed was that that plea was not knowing voluntary, uh, it essentially wasn't an informed plea. So, I mean, the question is, Bobby pleads guilty to a life sentence. Why would you plead guilty to something? Why would you not roll the dice at trial? And so when I spoke to attorney Busby, he was essentially saying that he doesn't remember Bobby having a lot of fight in him at the time and perhaps didn't want to go to a jury trial. But the implicit question is, why not risk it? I mean, because you're getting life either way. Why not? Why not take a shot at it? We're talking with Kellen Lyons, investigative reporter for NC Newsline, and Susan Pollard of the group Disability Rights North Carolina, one of their supervising attorneys. Susan, this is probably not unprecedented, right? Situations like this happen where people plead guilty to crimes. They probably don't even really understand what it is they're doing when they're getting themselves into those pleas. Yes, that does happen a lot, Rob. And I think it should be relevant that even Mr. Busby motioned to have Mr. Norfleet's capacity evaluated at a psychiatric hospital. We can't tell that that was ever done. There's no evidence that that actually happened before he entered the plea to a life sentence. And there are many more people like Bobby, I'm convinced, in our prison system. He's just basically lost his life to this for, you know, not only 43 years, but it would have been his whole life, I'm convinced, if I hadn't learned about him from the brave 
prison caseworker. And if, if I hadn't been able to pursue it and there weren't other people like um, Laura Gibson and a district attorney and a judge who also saw the injustice to the situation. But it's also very fortunate that he had family that he was still connected with and that he, and that cared about him. Reentry is very difficult to arrange. It takes a lot of knowledge about our mental health community, mental health system, our physical mental health system, how to access those services once you get out. It's it's a complicated process, but you know what? The North Carolina Department of Adult Correction knows how to do this. They released 3,500 people early during the COVID litigation. And it was basically people like Bobby who had disabilities. They weren't considered dangerous and they could be supported in the community. So North Carolina can do this. We can release people safely into the community after they have served a lot of time. And we need to do more of it. I mean, Keelan uncovered that 10 people were considered for medical parole in one whole year, 12 months. And many more people are eligible for parole, but not receiving it. I want to ask Kel about some of the other findings. I'm going to talk about the family. But I want to ask you, Susan, a little bit more about Bobby Norfleet's time in prison. I mean, it's pretty clear that at the time he's being released, this is an elderly, sick, unhealthy person who's really probably been harmless for an awful long time and subjected to a pretty horrific amount of abuse while they're in there. That is fair to say. Yeah, Mr. Morfleet was not dangerous. He had significant disabilities. And he lived through a time in our North Carolina prisons that were very dangerous and abusive. Back in the 80s, guys were triple bunked. And there was a very big lawsuit about the conditions of confinement in our prison called Small versus Hunt, which resulted in more prisons being built. But it's unbelievable what he lived through. And he's not talking, as I understand it. He would just rather not dwell on that, but look forward, which is great. Yeah, Kellen, you you spent some time with his brother, right? His family was critical in helping him to get out. And you've met Bobby, right? And talk to us about sort of what you found talking to him since he's been released. I have. I did. I met Bobby. I met his brother, Cornell, and I talked with uh, his brother, David, pretty extensively. They're a close-knit family. You know, I talked a lot with David about their time growing up together in and around Plymouth and sort of that, the the way that Bobby was this family cook and uh, the way that he loved to make all this food for his, for his brothers and his sisters. I talked with Carnell about Bobby's time in prison and, and Carnell having sort of a connection with him because Carnell also did some time during Bobby's incarceration as well. And, you know, one thing that stuck out to me about my talking with Dave is that he never really understood why Bobby stopped writing him, you know, because Bobby was in prison for so long, over four decades, and David would send him money. And at one point, like they stopped really communicating and David never really understood why. And he said that he, he understood why when he saw Bobby in court in Washington County at the end of 2022, because he just couldn't, couldn't do it. He saw his brother looking older, frailer, injured, really just kind of bearing this trauma in his body of, of the past four plus decades in North Carolina prisons. He lived with David for about a month in Virginia. And all Bobby wanted to talk about was the past. All Bobby wanted to talk about was time before prison. And Carnell told me, David couldn't figure out why. He was really kind of confused as to why Bobby wouldn't talk about anything he'd done for the past 43 years. Carnell said that he understood because Time kind of stops when you go away. You're just kind of frozen in, in a place of confinement. You know, his opinion was that there was nothing for Bob that was worth talking about for Bobby to talk about over those 43 years. But now he's out again. And now, you know, what he's got are those memories of before he went away. You know, it doesn't surprise me that he remembered 
his brothers and his sisters' phone numbers because he really loves them, pretty clearly really loves them. And he remembers a lot about time before he went to prison. I'm sure he held on to that a lot while he was while he was inside as well. Coming up next, part two of my special extended conversation with Susan Pollitt and Kellen Lyons. Stay with us. Read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. In part one of my special extended conversation with attorney Susan Pollitt and NC Newsline reporter Kellen Lyons, we discussed the tragic story of Bobby Norfleet, a North Carolina man who, thanks to a series of systemic injustices, spent 43 years in state prison. In part two of our conversation, we dug further into the details of Norfleet's story, as well as how and why he's far from the only elderly and disabled inmate in North Carolina for whom state prison long since ceased to be an appropriate or cost-effective home. We've already alluded to the fact maybe that there are a lot of people in North Carolina prison who are in situations not dissimilar to Bobby Norfleet. How does this work? I mean, there are people who are old and frail and probably not a threat to anybody, but the system for maybe getting them released is pretty haphazard, it almost seems like. It seems to be very bureaucratic and also not transparent. (laughs) It's very hard to know exactly what's going on. The district attorney in this case wanted to know why the governor wouldn't commute them. Well, the governor doesn't commute people that are parole eligible. I found out and provided that information to the DA. And he said, okay, well, why isn't he being paroled? That's something you can't find out. It's not even a tribunal. It's a paper review and a decision is made. But, um, you know, there's not really a chance to advocate or, or appear in front of the parole commission. There are other avenues for release. There's this medical parole statute, which we've discussed where 10 people were considered, which is just, you know, unbelievable. And again, that's a parole, ultimately a parole commission decision, which is part of the Department of Adult Correction, actually. And then there's something called extended limits of confinement, which is what was used during the COVID litigation, where if the Secretary of Correction determines that somebody could be safely released, they can extend the limits of the confinement to the community. And um, again, I'd like to stress that there were thousands of people released in 2021 under extended limits of confinement, and the vast majority of them were successful completions of their time. So there's Many, many people with disabilities in the prisons, physical and mental disabilities, that can safely live in the community and would reduce the cost and the tax of taxpayers taking care of them in our prison system. Our prison system is stressed right now, and this is pre-COVID. There are 40% vacancies of correctional officers, 40% vacancies of, of healthcare staff and clinicians. It's a difficult place to live and work. You know, it's really not fair to the state employees that are doing the yeoman's job of keeping these things running. And we don't need to. We don't need to keep them that full. So we're really strongly advocating for the release of people who have disabilities and can safely live in our communities. Ellen, some of your reporting subsequent to the initial report talks about who some of those people are, right? Some of the older folks who are still living in prison way into their elder years. Yeah, I, I got some data from um, Ben Finhold over at Duke Law's Wilson Center. It really kind of shed light on people who are in this North Carolina prison system who are kind of similar in characteristics to Bobby. So these are folks who are older than age 65 and who are eligible for parole. 
Um, there's about 498 people. The oldest is 96 years old. He has had one infraction since his entire, entire time in incarceration, and that was in 2001. And an infraction is basically just getting in trouble while you're in prison. And there's a broad array. Some, some infractions are very serious. Other infractions can be like not following an order. So it's really kind of wide range. Swearing at an officer or something like that, as I understand it. Right. And the guy who's been in there the longest has been there since 1960, and he hasn't had an infraction since 1980, which, fun fact, was 11 years before I was born. Uh, many of many of these individuals are in um, minimum security prisons. Um, now, of course, infractions and time inside is not really all the parole commission is, is considering when they're looking at whether someone is eligible for parole. Um, but just to to go back into parole, I want to say that you really can't look at Bobby's story without looking at the parole system. That means both medical release and parole as granted by the parole commission, um, kind of classic parole. The medical releases are really narrow. You have to be essentially dead or dying um, within six months of death in order to be able to get out. And parole itself is pretty subjected to the politics that surround that sort of release. And so through my reporting, I was you know, my conclusion was essentially that Bobby just got convicted at the wrong time. Like if he had been convicted a little bit later, he would have benefited from sentencing reforms and he would have spent less time in prison. If he had been convicted earlier, he probably could have gotten out on parole um, before the 1990s happened and things got a little bit um, on parole shifted. Now, and his attorney essentially said that Busby told me that he did not expect Bobby to do an entire life sentence behind bars, which is is quite notable considering that attorneys at the time were pleading guys out to you know long sentences, thinking they were only going to serve a fraction of that at the time because they were going to just get paroled out. And then say someone gets parole eligible 20 years later, well, the politics have shifted dramatically in 99 compared to 79. And so someone is less less likely to get out. Wow, it's an amazing story. We're coming to the end of our time with Kellen Lyons of NC Newsline and Susan Pollitt of Disability Rights, North Carolina. Susan, you've talked about that we should be releasing a lot more people, that our prisons are overcrowded. We don't have enough workers to properly staff them. How should that happen? Are there things that the General Assembly, laws they should enact, or are there just policies that the Department of Corrections should should implement, or is it all of the above? I think it could be all of the above. Bobby was lost. I mean, Bobby was put in prison and nobody thought about Bobby again. Nobody, I mean, his family did, but nobody who could affect his life, his future did. He didn't take GED. He basically just passed time for 43 years. And there's a lot of talk about rehabilitation and making prison worthwhile and releasing people better than you find them. But we don't have, we don't have the staff. We're not contributing the funds that are needed to do that. These people can be identified. Bobby was identified. The people who work in prisons can identify these people, and there are ways to get them out. There are legislative changes that might improve the number of people eligible for medical parole. The secretary of the Department of Adult Correction can release a lot more people under under the current policy or amend it a bit about who he would consider eligible for extending the limits of confinement. But we can't wait, I'm afraid. I think our prisons are at a critical time and the people that can go into the community need to. Kellen, did you have some final thoughts? Yeah, I think that there, there's been an acknowledgement of the of the, the so-called graying of the prison population, that, that the people who behind bars are growing older. And as they age into their sentences, there's been a lot of state data presented to the legislature this year that 
uh, 60 and 70 year olds are starting to make up more of the prison system, you know, and the state acknowledged this by creating this palliative care unit over at central prison mm-hmm. to try to help older folks who are, who are growing old behind bars and need that care. They have 77 jobs. The prison system only filled three of those jobs as of February. Wow. That's, that's not a fully staffed unit to say the least. <laughs> and that's a function I presume these are really hard jobs under the best of circumstances. And we probably don't pay people enough to want to take on such jobs. Is that basically what it boils down to? Yeah, I mean, I hear a lot from from folks about how I mean, the jobs the job is really difficult. There's a lot of turnover. The state did pass um, a step salary increase to try to essentially offer raises and a path forward so that people can make it work financially. But I mean, these are hard jobs, and not everybody wants to do them. And so it's it's hard to hold on to folks. It's hard hard to hold on to qualified folks. And you know, I've written in other prison systems about um, specifically like medical units and how it's a lot more lucrative for you to not work in a prison system if you have, you know, a PhD or you're a nurse or, or what have you, you know, it's a much, it's, it's hard. It's hard to attract folks. It's hard to attract talent to work in prisons and to stay. Susan, any final thoughts from your point of view on this story? I would just be repeating, Rob, that there are lots of, of Bobby Northleys in our prison and it's, it's time to identify those people and move them back to meaningful lives. Susan Powell is a supervising attorney for Disability Rights North Carolina. You can learn more about them if you just go to disabilityrightsnc.org. And my colleague, Kellen Lyons, is an NC Newsline investigative reporter. His story, A Miscarriage of Justice, A Life in Prison, told the story of Bobby Northfleet, who was uh, should have been released from prison decades ago, but spent 43 years of his life behind bars. Uh, you can check it out at ncnewsline.com. Thanks so much for being with me. And um, we'll, uh, I'm sure, be talking about some of these issues again in the future. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's it for this edition of News and Views. Remember, you can check us out online and subscribe for free to some of our state's best news coverage and political commentary at ncnewsline.com. You can also listen to all of our interviews and commentaries wherever you get your podcasts. For producer Clayton Henkel, it's Rob Schofield. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to News and Views, a weekly look at state news, events, and public policy debates produced by North Carolina Newsline. Visit them online at ncnewsline.com.